word for us this morning. As I looked at this passage, you'll notice uh, just as you read through it, you'll see some themes emerge, theme of thanksgiving and prayer in the life of the apostle. As he thought about the work of God in the lives of these Ephesian believers, and we all love to hear good news, don't we? It's just true. We love to hear good news. So some of us spend a lot of time looking through the headlines, trying to find good news about our political parties or our favorite politician. Some of us are focused on hearing good news about our favorite sports teams. So go dogs. College students love to hear good news about their most recent paper or exam that they've taken. Parents, uh, if you're a parent, you know that you love to hear good news about how your children are doing or if you're a little older, how your grandchildren are doing. And it's a blessing to hear good news. And here's the thing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to hear good news. Uh, our God blesses us in so many ways in this life. And, and one of the ways that he blesses us is just by giving us opportunities to see the things he's doing in the lives of people we love or just in our own lives. And, and so we hear good news about things in this world, and we're excited about that. And yet, as believers, we know that this isn't the only world. Indeed, there is a much greater world, an eternal world, a spiritual world. Think of it as the kingdom of Christ. And just as we long to hear good news about the things of this world, so as believers in Jesus, as Christians, well, we should long to hear good news about the advance of Christ in this world, in his gospel. I thought about Jonathan Edwards when I thought about that this week. He was a good example of this. Listen to what he said about his own desire to hear good news about the advance of the gospel. He said this in his personal narrative. He said, I had great longings for the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. My secret prayer used to be in great part taken up in praying for it. And if I heard the least hint of anything that happened in any part of the world that appeared to me in some respect or another to have favorable aspect on the interest of Christ's kingdom, my soul eagerly catched at it, and it would much energize and refresh me. Now, he wrote that 300 years ago, and he uses Jonathan Edwards' language, but you get the idea, is that he was longing to hear good things about the gospel as it spreads through the nations. And, and when he did hear it, he rejoiced. And, and I thought of that because you also see a, a good example of that in the life of the Apostle Paul in these two verses. We read the whole section this morning, verses 15 to 23, but most especially we're going to be focusing our hearts on just the first two verses this morning, verses 15 and 16. And here you see the Apostle Paul uh, as he hears good news about these Ephesian believers, and then he responds to that good news with prayer and thanksgiving. So if you're with us this morning, uh, for the first time, you found us in the middle of a study of the book of Ephesians. If you were with us last week, in the past few months, you know that we've been working our way through this book, and most especially recently, we've been looking at verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1, where we saw Paul really just kind of explode in praise to God the Father, uh, to our triune God, really, for the work of grace that he has done in blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we said that these blessings that we've discussed, well, they're not just for the super Christians, for the good guys, for those who try harder than others, but actually, if you are a believer, a genuine Christian, a follower of Jesus, well, then these treasures, these blessings, they're yours this morning. So we talked about them. We talked about the fact that believers have been elected unto salvation and that we have been redeemed and that we've been given spiritual insight into God's plan for the entire universe, that we know where it's all going, that we've received an eternal inheritance in Christ, 
And we'll receive the fullness of that when we see Jesus face to face. And last week, we spent our time thinking about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And we thought, what a, what a privilege, what a blessing that the Holy Spirit of God would indwell us and would live within us. And that's what he's done. Now, in this letter, you see that having laid out these blessings, the Apostle Paul now turns and he's going to most especially pray for these Ephesian believers. That's really what you're seeing from verses 15 to 23. He's praying for these Ephesian believers, but I want you to notice what he prays for. Notice that Paul does not pray that God would pour out more blessings. He doesn't pray that God would give us more blessings. Instead, as we study this passage, we're going to see that actually what he prays is that we would know more deeply, that we would realize more fully the spiritual blessings that we have already received in Christ. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, what you need is more insight into what God has done for you in Christ. And we need the Holy Spirit of God to open our eyes. So Paul is praying for them that, that God would help them grasp what they have received, the fullness of these blessings. And so as we study this passage over the next two or possibly three weeks, we should be praying that same thing, that God would open our eyes more fully to see what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have received these spiritual blessings, what it is to have this God as our God, and to know that all of these treasures are ours and are available to us in Jesus Christ. So we're going to try to study this passage, Lord willing, in two parts. We may or may not succeed. We may go into three parts. We'll see. But this morning, as I said, we're just going to look at verses 15 and 16 because they, they really set up the prayer then for us. And I want us to look at what Paul does. And I want us to see most especially the way that Paul responds to the grace of God, which is at work in the lives of these Ephesian believers. And then, Lord willing, next week we will study verses 17 to 23, where we'll see the Apostle Paul pray and actually pray for these believers and that will be a good model for us. If you have the handout that you received when you came through the door this morning, you'll see that, that from these two verses, there are two points that I want us to focus our hearts on. Two characteristics of genuine faith in the lives of the Ephesians. We're going to see that as we look at verses 15. And then we're going to see Paul's response to the Ephesians' genuine faith as we look at, verses, at verse 16. Let's look at that first point together then. Two characteristics of genuine faith in the lives of the Ephesians. Here's what Paul says. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Let's just stop there. And let me give you just a little bit of additional background on what happened and how Paul came to know these Ephesian believers to begin with. If you read through the book of Acts and you get to chapter 19, you hear the inspired account, inspired account of how Paul came to Ephesus and began to proclaim the gospel. Uh, he began to teach uh, many men and women in that city about this person, Jesus. And through preaching the gospel, there was a remarkable impact on the city. So that many turned away from worshiping kind of the false gods that they had grown up worshiping, most especially turning away from the goddess Artemis. And they demonstrated their repentance by burning the magic books of their religion and of the kind of the superstitions of their culture and it's interesting because the, the Bible lets us know how much those books were worth all together as they burned them. There was 50,000 pieces of silver. So they're turning their, 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 their backs to their old religion, which they understand to be false now. And they are burning this massive sum of money, which one person estimated to be around $5 million 
in today's currency. They were demonstrating the reality of their repentance by turning away from false gods to the true God. And so there was this enormous impact in the city of Ephesus. And it it stirred people up to oppose the gospel, particularly those who made their money through forming idols and, and as a part of this false religion. And so ultimately, Paul was forced to leave Ephesus. And now some time had gone by, somewhere between four and six years, not exactly sure, but around four to six years has gone by. Paul finds himself in prison in Rome. And what can he do? Well, he can bless the churches of the world by writing these inspired letters. And that's what he does. So during his imprisonment, he heard reports. That's what you see in verse 15. I've heard about you. He's heard reports about these Ephesian believers. And so he writes to them. uh, And he wants to share with them just kind of the glory and the wonder of the gospel, which is what he does in the book of Ephesians. But he says specifically that he had heard something about these believers. Uh, He'd heard that two things characterized their lives. So they were characterized by faith in the Lord Jesus and by love towards all the saints. And it's those two characteristics that I want us to really focus our hearts on this morning as we look at this first point, the faith and love, because these things indicate genuine salvation. Paul's saying, I've heard about you. I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. I've heard about your love for the saints. And he knew that meant that these were genuine Christians, genuine followers of Christ. So I want us to look at those two realities, those two characteristics, because they teach us what it means to be a genuine Christian. One of the things as a pastor I'm striving to do each Lord's Day is to help you to see what a Christian is, that it's not just a religious person. It's not just someone that's heard some things about Jesus, but it's someone who's been transformed by the very power of God. And so there's this impact in their life and they're changed and they're different and they're not who they used to be because God is at work in them. And that's what you see here. You see the way that God, by his grace, has been at work in these Ephesians. Look look first at that first characteristic then, faith in the Lord Jesus. And here's the point I want us to make, that genuine Christians possess faith in the Lord Jesus. So let's talk about that a little more. What is this faith? Uh, It is to say this, that they possess saving faith. So here's the question. Well, what then is saving faith? Uh, We hear the word faith all the time, and it can be difficult to define it, to come up with kind of a concrete way of expressing what we mean when we say that word faith. Uh, The Greek word for faith is pistis. It's a, a word that speaks of belief or trust. But there's more that we can say. Historically, theologians, in thinking about this reality of saving faith, they've broken it down into three parts or three components uh, to help us understand exactly what is involved in saving faith. And I thought it would be important for us to take some time and think about that. The first component, component of saving faith is this. It's knowledge. So think about Paul and the Ephesians. Think about that example that we just talked about. From Acts 19, what happened? Paul goes into this city. It was a prominent city in Asia, this province of Rome. And he comes and he begins to proclaim this new knowledge to the people. It's a a new knowledge. They hadn't heard it before. He begins to proclaim this man, Jesus. Only Paul goes on to say, actually, this, this man was actually God who came into the world as a man in order to live a perfect life and then to lay down his life on the cross to die as a sacrifice for sinful men and women. But he didn't stay dead. No, he prophesied beforehand that he would rise from the dead three days after he died, and then he did it. He rose from the dead, demonstrating that he was truly the Son of God. 
and the Savior of the world. And then Paul goes on to say, and you must turn from your sins and trust in Jesus if you would be saved, which is to say, have a reconciled relationship with God, which is to say God would forgive you for all your sins and welcome you as his son or daughter. He proclaims this knowledge. So many Ephesians learned this gospel knowledge, but here's the thing, possessing knowledge about the gospel is not saving faith. After all, many people sit in churches Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and they hear more and more knowledge about Jesus, but they're not saved. They don't have a reconciled relationship with God. So saving faith, and this is what's important to hear, saving faith is more than just a head knowledge about Jesus. You see, there's a second component or second part of saving faith, and and that's belief. So Paul, he goes into Ephesus and he begins to proclaim this new knowledge, this Jesus, this gospel that we treasure at this church, and most do not believe. But some do. Some intellectually agree with the reality of who Jesus is. They they see what Paul's doing. If you read through Acts 19, I'd encourage you to do that this afternoon. They see the dramatic miracles that he's performing. So they see God at work, and then they hear about this person, Jesus, and they are convinced that Jesus is God and that Jesus is Savior. Intellectually, they believe those truths. But of course, merely believing that Jesus is God and Savior isn't saving faith. So think about our children as they grow up in our homes. At least for a while, many of them intellectually believe that Jesus is God. But they're not saved. They're not born again. And so when they go off to college or they go off to the workplace, well, they become intellectually convinced that Jesus isn't God and that Jesus isn't Savior. Or at least that Jesus isn't important and they have better things to do with their lives. And so they leave. Why? Because they they possess belief, intellectual belief, but they didn't possess saving faith. So saving faith is more than just believing true things about Jesus. Let me put it as clearly as I can. Satan believes true things about Jesus, but he's not saved. There's a third part. There's a third component, and it's the most important one. It's this. It is trust. So Paul comes to Ephesus. He proclaims Christ. Most do not believe, but some are intellectually convinced that what he's saying is true, but they stop there. But then there are others that go further. They do more. They actually put their trust in Jesus. They actually put their hope in Jesus. They believe in Jesus, which means they stopped looking to themselves and what they could do to make themselves right with God. And instead, they put all their hope in Jesus and in Jesus only. You see, they trusted in Christ, which is to say they had this saving faith. Charles Spurgeon spoke about this need to have trust in Christ. Listen to what he said. He said, commit yourself to the merciful God. Rest your hope on the gracious gospel. Trust your soul on the dying and living Savior. Wash away your sins in the atoning blood. Accept his perfect righteousness and all is well. Trust is the lifeblood of faith. There is no saving faith without it. The Puritans were accustomed to explain faith by the word recumbency. Uh, It meant leaning upon a thing. Lean with all your weight upon Christ. 
It would be a better illustration still if I said, fall at full length and lie on the rock of ages. Cast yourself upon Jesus. Rest in him. Commit yourself to him. That done, you have exercised saving faith. So here's Paul. He, he's writing now in verse 15 these Ephesian believers in the city of Ephesus, and we know kind of around Ephesus, the believers and the churches there. Some of them he knew because God had used him to bring them to saving faith in Jesus. But then after he was forced to leave, others had become Christians as well. And then even after that, the Ephesian believers, well, they went out into the surrounding cities and they told more and more people about Jesus and they trusted in Jesus. And so, so Paul, he's writing to these believers and he doesn't know most of them, but he knows something about them because he's heard. He's heard that they possess faith in the Lord Jesus, that it's a real thing, that it's a trusting thing. And because they possess faith in the Lord Jesus, they were genuine believers. So, friend, what about you? You know, I, I particularly want to tr- just address the young people here because, listen, you're growing up in, in, a, in a home where many of you at least are hearing about Jesus. Uh, your parents, you know, they're doing it imperfectly, just as I'm doing it imperfectly, but they're trying to point you towards Christ. They're trying to show you that this Jesus is, is not just some religious figure that you hear about in Sunday school, but, but he is God and Savior. He's the one that you must put your trust in. So let me ask you, have you done that? You see, here's the thing. It's, you, you have knowledge about Jesus, and you might intellectually believe that Jesus is God and Savior. My question to you is, is do you have trust in him? Have you trusted in Christ completely for salvation? Oh, young people, and not just young people, old people, please, trust in Christ. This is the way to be saved. It's not enough to have an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is. It's not enough even to intellectually assent to that. You must trust in him. You must lean on him. You must rest on him. Only then do you have saving faith. Trust in Christ. Put your hope in him this morning. Genuine Christians are those who actively trust in Christ alone for salvation. But then there's a second characteristic you see in this verse of what a genuine Christian is like. Look at the second part of verse 15. He says there that he's heard that they have love towards all the saints. And that's the second characteristic. Genuine Christians exhibit love towards all the saints. The word love there, it's the familiar Greek word agape. Most of us probably know that word. It's the word for God's love. It's not a self-focused thing. It's not a self-interested thing. It's an attitude of selfless sacrifice for the good of others. One commentator put it this way. I really appreciate it. He said that, that agape love seeks to give rather than possess, always seeking the highest good, or the will of God in the life of the one love. There it is. It's, it's not interested in self. It's interested in the other. It's not about possessing what can I get from you. It's about giving and blessing, being concerned that you would have a right relationship with God. That's this agape love that he's talking about here. And notice that it's towards the saints. Well, who are the saints? Well, they're the ones who are holy in Christ which is to say they're the ones who possess the righteousness of Christ, which is to say that anyone who is a genuine Christian or follower of Jesus. Let's make a few observations then about this kind of love that genuine Christians possess. 
First, agape love is directed towards the saints, so it's towards other Christians. That's not to say that Christians only love other Christians. It's simply not true. Uh, If you know the history of the world, you know the history of Christianity in particular, you know that Christians have always kind of led the way in doing things like schools and hospitals and universities. Why? Because we understand that God has told us to love our neighbors ourselves, and we want others to be blessed and to have what they need. It's a manifestation of the love of God for those that do not follow God. But it is to say that Christians love other Christians with a particular love. Uh, with the love of God. It's a family love. King Jesus loves his people with a particular love, and so his people kind of follow suit, and they love other believers with a particular love. And that leads Christians to separate or to sacrifice themselves for the good of other Christians, to lay down their lives for them and to serve them. And here's the thing. This agape love, this attitude of self-sacrifice, concern for the good of the other, well, it's a characteristic of a man or woman who is genuinely a believer. In contrast, a person who professes to be a Christian but seems to have no concern for other believers, a person who professes to be a Christian but seems to have no concern to be in the presence of other Christians, let me say it as clearly as I can, someone who says, oh yeah, I follow Jesus and I have no interest in being in church. That person's faith, that person's love then becomes very suspect Because agape love is focused on loving other believers. Do you see that? So here's this characteristic. It's given by God so that we would love one another with the very love of God. Now I want you to notice something else about this passage. Agape love is directed towards all the saints. You notice we kind of skipped over that word. We did that on purpose. It's all the saints. Why? Because that word all, it's very demanding. It's very demanding. It means that as Christians, we're not free to pick and choose whom we're going to love. We're not given that right to decide who we're going to love. Actually, no, the love of God is given to us so that we would love all believers and seek to do them good. John MacArthur said this about this, Christian love is indiscriminate. It does not pick and choose which believers it will love. Christ loves all believers, and they are precious to him. By definition, therefore, Christian love extends to all Christians to the extent that it does not. It is less than Christian. That's important to understand. Now, believe it or not, there may come a time in the life of this church where we come across another believer that we find it difficult to love. That might possibly happen. You know, perhaps it's a matter of personalities or personalities that just, you know, just don't mix for whatever reason. You know, you try, you try, but it's oil and water. It just doesn't mix no matter how hard you try. Perhaps it's more serious than that. Perhaps that that person has sinned against you in some way, perhaps even a serious way. Well, what, what should we do? Are we justified in turning away from that brother or sister and just going on to love other people in the church? And of course, the answer is no that we are never justified in doing that. Again, the, the call, the love that we're given is to be shown to all believers. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to be best friends with everyone in the church because one, that's not possible and that's not really designed anyways. It does mean this though. It means that we are called to love and be concerned about and indeed even pray for everyone in the church as a manifestation of love for them and concern for them. 
It means that we are to desire that God would do good to the person who tempts us to be bitter. We are to desire that God would do good to them, that God would bless them, that if their relationship with God isn't right, that, that God would be at work there and that we might even be able to be at work there and helping that relationship be restored because that is this agape love that gives and doesn't take, that gives and does not possess. And here's the thing, as we pray for them, we'll discover something. We'll discover that God will actually soften our hearts towards them because it's very difficult to hate someone you pray for. So if you struggle with hatred towards someone, pray for them. Ask God to bless them, do good to them, and watch God work in your heart this Christ-like love. When did he love us? While we were his enemies, he laid down his life for us. There's another word here in the, in the sense that we are to call, call to be uh, loving towards all the saints. There's a, a word for us regarding denominations. So if you don't know, Christ Fellowship Church is a Baptist church, and I'm a very happy Baptist pastor. Uh, but even though I'm convictionally a Baptist, it, it doesn't mean that I am free from having concerns about my brothers and sisters in other denominations. Actually, I'm called to have a love towards all the saints, and so it should be a great joy for me to hear that my Lutheran brothers and sisters and Presbyterian brothers and sisters and just kind of go on down the list of others, well, that they are flourishing and growing. And, and here's the thing. None of us have our theology perfectly right. And for that reason, there's always going to be disagreements about secondary matters. They're not unimportant matters, but they are secondary matters. Things like baptism, things like church governance. It's not that they're unimportant, but it is that they're secondary, right? And so we should be concerned about our brothers and sisters in other denominations. Why? Well, because we have the same God. Because we have the same Savior. Because we have the same gospel. Because we have the same Holy Spirit within us. Because we have the same hope that when we get to heaven, we will see Jesus as he is. And and if we're all like Jesus, guess what? Well, we're all going to be like each other. And then we will know peace and unity and love in an eternal and glorious sense that in this world we strive for but often fail. So Christ Fellowship, let's be a church that prays for other churches. Let's be a church that prays for churches of other denominations. That God would bless them and grow them and build them up in the gospel. To put it simply, we should be thrilled when we hear that God is blessing evangelical churches, which means gospel-preaching churches of other denominations. I love J.C. Ryle, and I love his advice on denominations. He said, keep the walls of separation as low as possible and shake hands over them as often as you can. That's good advice for us. Well, we can't, we can't talk about this agape love without just fixing our hearts on the gospel because the good news of Jesus is uh, centered on the reality that our God is a God who loves us. Listen to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the Bible, we know it tells us hard things about ourselves. It tells us that we were created by God to love him and to serve him, that God wanted us to have a relationship with him that would be marked by love uh, and by closeness and by unity and joy and peace and all those things, by service. 
And yet our first parents, they sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. They rejected God's good law. They said, it's better for me to live my own way for me as opposed to living under God. I will be king, not God. That's what they did. They rejected his kingly rule. And here's the thing. We sinned in them, and because we come from them, we have all been born with that same sinful nature which leads us to turn away from God and say, thank you, I don't want to live under your good law. I prefer to live the way I want to live. And so we do, and we do it well. We run from God, we run towards self, we serve ourselves. We actually find ways that we can use other people in order to promote ourselves. We all have done this. We've sinned against God, we've sinned against others. All of us, the Bible says, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us that God is holy, that we're not holy, so there's no way for us to be good enough for this God. There's no way for me to make up for the sins that I have committed. And so if I were to die in my sins, well, I would have no hope in myself. The good news, that word gospel we talk about, it means good news. The good news of the gospel is that God is a God of love who has provided the Savior, Jesus Christ, In love, God the Father sent his Son into this world to die for sinners. In love, the Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life, and you notice what it was like. Well, it was love for God, and it was love for others, selflessly giving all throughout his life. Just read about it in the Gospels, how he pours himself out for those, even for those who hate him. And then, in the greatest act of love in history, the eternal Son of God, he lays down his life on the cross for sinners like you and me, and he dies. But then he rises from the dead, changing history and showing that he is the one he proclaims to be, God and Savior. The message of the gospel this morning is that if you will turn from your sins and put your trust wholly in Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his sacrifice on the cross, well, then you will receive Jesus as your Savior that God will treat you just as if you lived his perfect life and all of your sins, all of them will be wiped away because Jesus paid for them on the cross. That's the hope of the gospel. If you're with us this morning, you're hearing that good news and there's something within you that longs to reach out to that Savior, we encourage you to cry out for mercy this morning. Put your hope in him. If you want to talk with someone about what it would look like to follow Jesus, you can talk with me. You can talk with many of the people sitting around you this morning. We'd have no greater joy than to tell you what God has done for us in Christ. And I encourage you to follow him because he's good. Christ Fellowship, thinking about this kind of love. Just think about what you just heard. Think about the eternal Son of God coming from the glory of heaven into this world. Why? To give himself to the uttermost as a sacrifice. That's a picture of the kind of love we are supposed to have for one another in this church. Not a possessing thing, not a what can I get from you thing, but a how can I lay down my life for your good. That's the, that's the picture. That's the goal. The glorious thing is more than a picture and a goal. It's that reality and the Holy Spirit given to us through that gospel that empowers us to actually do it. So God is at work in us so that we can love one another in just those kind of ways. And we should pray for grace to love each other in that way in this church. So verse 15, you see these two characteristics of a genuine Christian, faith in the Lord Jesus and love towards the saints. So the second point we want to see this morning in verse 16. Paul 
responds to the Ephesians' genuine faith. Look at verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now look at, look at how Paul responds then to, to what he sees in the life of these believers. He's like the Apostle John who said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Well, Paul's the same way. When he hears of their genuine faith and their love towards the saints, he's overjoyed. And so he responds in thanksgiving and he responds in prayer. And I want us to look at those two things much more briefly than we just did. I want us to see thanksgiving and prayer. Look at first at thanksgiving. He says, I do not cease to give thanks. Why did Paul give thanks to God? Because everything that he saw in the life of those believers was given to them as a gift from God. It was God's grace at work in these Ephesian believers, and so he thanks God for the grace that had produced this genuine faith and agape love in them. And notice that Paul did not cease to give thanks, which meant that it was his consistent pattern to be praising God and thanking God for the genuine faith of these Christians. And so from this example, we see that we should also give thanks to God for the genuine faith that we see in one another's lives. So let me give you just one way you can do that. So we should, we should seek to learn one another's stories of how we became Christians, of how Jesus saved us. One of the blessings that Missy and I have, and really it is, it is for us, it's a blessing, because we get to have so many of you into our home. Our goal is to have all of you into our home. That's what we're going for. Like we're striving all of you in there. Lord willing, eventually we'll get there. And, but it's a joy for us because we get to spend time with you and we get to hear how you're doing. Uh, and we get to know how we can pray for you. And, and, and then here's this great blessing is that we get to hear the stories of how you became Christians. And that strengthens our faith. And that encourages us. And that, that leads us to give thanks to God. So I can kind of look around the room this morning and I can see your faces, and I can see the stories of how God saved you. And it leads me to give thanks to God for His grace at work in your life. So let me encourage that as a discipline for your life as well. Uh, be someone that invites people into your home, love on them in Christ's name, and ask them how they became a Christian. Let that be the topic of your conversation. Listen to God's grace at work in their lives. It will fill your heart with gratitude to God. At the same time, even as we think about that initial grace that you see in the life of a believer when they become a Christian, well, we, we want to rejoice in that, but we also don't want to overlook kind of the ongoing works of faith that we see in the lives of other believers. So as an elder in this church, uh, I get a front row seat on God's grace in your lives. You just have to know that that's a privilege and a blessing. So I get to see how God is at work in you. I get to see you serve. So I'm grateful for the way that Scott... And Ron serve as elders in this church, praying for you and doing so many things that you don't know about behind the scenes. But I get to see that. Uh, I'm grateful for the way Larry Holcomb spends countless hours serving as our deacon of all. And I'm grateful for the way that Catherine Zaldivar has been used of God to begin kind of a prayer meeting on Sunday morning so that she can lead others to praying for us as we meet. And I'm grateful for Linda Stoll, uh, who keeps the coffee and the napkins and everything running so that we have glorious coffee on Sunday morning. And I'm grateful for the way that Laverne Clayton and the others on the women's ministry team, well, they work together to come up with discipleship opportunities for women in our church. And I'm grateful for Sophia Workala, who helps us with the children's ministry so that our little ones get to hear about Jesus every single Lord's Day. And I'm grateful for Brian Partlow's willingness to serve as a treasurer in the church. And I'm grateful for Amy Partlow's just love for our community and desire to reach out to the community with the gospel. And she helps us with that 
And I'm grateful for Josiah's, Josiah Monfreda's excellent service as my assistant, helping me do far more than I can do otherwise. And I'm grateful for the way Jerry Hu and Chloe Fulmer work hard to take the gospel to the campus of William & Mary. And I'm grateful for the way Jason Bain leads our music ministry with excellence and passion and joy. Isn't it good to see him rejoicing every Sunday morning? It's good for us to be happy. As we think about the gospel, it's a good thing. And here's the thing. I can go on and on and on. Just seeing ways that God is at work in your lives, helping you love him and love others. And God's grace is at work in this church, and it's demonstrated, it's demonstrated in your lives. And it leads me to gratitude, and we should be grateful for God's grace in this church. Now look again at verse 16. We see prayer there. It says, remembering you in my prayer. So here Paul tells these Ephesian believers that he regularly prays for them. And the word he uses there actually kind of indicates that he prays for them by name. So it's not just as a group. He's praying just for, you know, those Ephesians over there. God bless them. But to the extent that he was able, he was actually bringing them by name to God. Praying for them by name. And that's such a good example for us. One of our responsibilities as elders is to pray for you by name. And, and we do. And one of the responsibilities you have as members of the church is to pray for one another. And you can do that by name. One of the resources we use, and uh, there's not one as I thought there would be, membership directory, we'll get some over there. If you're a member of the church, we want you to have a membership directory. If you're a regular attender, you're welcome to use one as well. Use that membership directory as an opportunity to look at faces and to pray. Pray for God's grace to be at work in the lives of men and women in this church and give thanks to God and remember one another in prayers and we can do that. So here, here we've seen, looking at these two verses, we've seen the way that Paul rejoiced in the good news of the genuine faith of these Ephesian believers and rejoiced in their love for others. And it led him to thanksgiving and prayer. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the prayer itself where, where Paul takes them before the throne of God and prays for them. And that will be a good model for us. So let's pray. Father, we praise you.